tax tax which is always exciting GST reform that's a great idea more efficient tax due diligence now Hello and welcome to Tax Wrap, episode 26. Uh, Nathan Hewitt here, and you're also joined by Lisa, Letty, Andy, and Reese. How are we doing, guys? Oh, going great, thanks. Doing well. Tired, Nathan. Yeah, it's very tired. <laughs> it was nice a late night last night. Yes. That's true. And I left the earliest. <laughs> Today's episode is your special edition Federal Budget 2015 coverage. We'll dissect the winners and losers and analyse the big measures so you can get a clear idea of what it means for you. There are a host of topics, though, so let's get started with small business. Now, small business owners have plenty of reason to like this budget. It's been said the government has extended an unprecedented hand of generosity to small businesses that aren't companies, unincorporated, unincorporated businesses, sorry, will likely see some benefits their way. So Andy, what are the big measures here? Well, the so-called dull and boring budget, um, Nathan, has got a few surprises here, especially for small business. Now, there are a couple of things that had been leaked prior to the budget and now they've come to fruition and a few little surprises along the way. Now, first and foremost, we get some tax cuts for our uh, small business entities. Now, the government has set out that the definition of a small business entity is an entity with aggregated turnover of $2 million. Okay. So that's the threshold to which all these concessions that have been announced by the government in the growing jobs and small business package to which it will apply. Now, the tax cuts for companies and unincorporated entities is the biggest one to come out of that. For small companies, we knew that going into this budget that it will be a 28.5% uh, tax rate, corporate tax rate for these small uh, companies. What we didn't know, however, was there, are, there is a 5% discount for unincorporated entities and the individuals who benefit from those entities. So f say, for example, if your tax bill is $10,000, uh, you would get a 5% discount on that tax bill. So that's how it would be, would be put simply. That's that's pretty good. That's And quite unprecedented, is that right? We didn't see anything like that um, coming out? No, no. It was something that was totally unexpected on our end. We did expect to be some sort of tax cuts for companies, but we weren't quite sure how it would have unfolded for uh, unincorporated entities. And this 5% uh, Discount. Uh, it is capped at one thousand dollars for okay. each individual who receives that benefit as well. So it's not uh, a free for all. It is a pleasant surprise. Okay. And this kind of benefit is it to the detriment of anyone? Is there anyone have reason to be upset about this or uh, p potentially? I mean, obviously the devil's in the detail, Nathan. Um, mm. So say for example, if you were a beneficiary of a trustee, an individual beneficiary of a trustee, the, the question will be: Will you be entitled? to this 5% discount in your tax bill. Um, am I able, as a trust, able to stream this business income directly to uh, that individual, and will that individual be entitled to a 5% discount? So we haven't seen any legislation to date, so it's a matter of watch this space and <laughs> see uh, and see where we, we, we go from there. But it is a potential question. Another potential question is also, you know, for example, if I had a trust and I had a corporate beneficiary, mm -hmm. Would that corporate beneficiary be entitled to 28.5% tax rate or would it still keep the 30% corporate tax rate? Now, my initial gut feeling to this is that because that corporate beneficiary isn't necessarily conducting a business, mm -hmm. it may be that that 30% uh, corporate tax rate will, will stay with the corporate beneficiary. So, so a few little things uh, just to watch out for uh, on, on that measure. The, the other thing to, to note and another little surprise that came out with the 
reduction to the corporate tax rate is the fact that um, the franking credits available will be 30% and not 28.5% as we initially had anticipated. So there is a 1.5% benefit there to, um, okay. to mum and dad investors who have a fa these family companies, they can take advantage of that additional 1.5%. We had initially anticipated that you won't get the full value of the franking credits, but in this particular case, as announced in the budget, it seems like, like that additional 1.5% will flow through. Okay, are there any other measures that we should uh, sort of take note of that apply to small businesses or is it all just a case of wait and see what happens? Well, the other big measure that came out of the, the budget was the immediate write-off for uh, capital purchases. Now, we've had a couple of iterations of this. We've started off with um, $1,000 immediate write-off for small businesses, for capital purchases. Then it increased to 5000 a few years ago, then it increased to $6,500. Then it went back to $1,000 and now in its new form, it's gone up to $20,000. So you, Nathan, can go out. If you're setting up a cafe, you can buy that uh, nice shiny uh, coffee machine that you always wanted. Nice. You know, for ten dollars or $15,000 and you can get an immediate write-off. That's crazy. Is that, that. Is that quite, that, that's quite a hike. And are there any uh, possible sort of detriments to that? Are there any sort of loopholes that people can exploit when looking at writing off assets of that value? Well, the, the one thing that we, we expect is that, well, the great thing is you get the immediate deduction. So that's money in your pocket that yep. you can spend in your business. But later down the track, what you might actually find, Nathan, is let's say that you're, particularly with small businesses, their lifespans can only be, potentially can be up to two to three years unless you're very successful, it can go on forever. But there are some instances where you might have to wind down your business and sell some of those assets. And that's where potentially you might be subject to a tax liability for selling that asset because you don't have a, in a loose term, a cost base for that asset because okay. you've already claimed a deduction for that. So that's just something to be aware of. We haven't seen any details as such, but it is something just to keep an eye out, just in case that, that may happen down the track. And Lady, is there anything else that we need to be wary of? In I suppose I just wanted to uh, add to your question about the loophole. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, um, Joe Hockey was asked that this morning, uh, and he made a very um, in, well, very interesting comment, in the sense that he said that ultimately, even if they are so-called loopholes, uh, businesses are not going to spend money that won't benefit their business. Okay, well, I guess that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yes, really, yeah. is it sort of so? I guess the government's underlying agenda is just to help grow the small business sector to help them get started. Is that sort of the underlying premise for the allowing them access to this rider? That, that's, that's correct, Nathan. It's any, for a business, cash flow is very, very important. And having that additional cash flow to fund those, to pay your bills, to, to make ends meet, particularly when you're running a business, it's, it's a very, very welcome measure. Um, we do caution, however, that uh, these are tinkering of the edges when it comes to the small business, business tax system. Um, as people will, uh, where uh, people at home would know, the government is undertaking consultation with a white paper, and so hopefully the structural reforms, particularly for small business, that everybody is yearning for, will come through uh, when the government releases that paper. Uh, hopefully in the new year. Now, uh, Lisa, there's also a, a new change that new companies will be able to write off their startup costs straight away. Can you explain that a little bit better? Yeah. So what? basically happens is those costs are what we call capital and they could be written off over five years. So just like Andy was d discussing about the depreciating assets immediate write-off, it's just bringing 
the deductions up front straight away. And the real benefit for that that you know I see in talking to a lot of small businesses is that they can get the professional advice from the lawyers, the accountants, the tax advisors up front instead of just going it alone. So it's very important, as we know, with any sort of business structure, you set it up the right way to begin with. So what I think this will be is encouraging these small businesses to um, get the advice from the professionals to make sure that they can start their business and also exit their business correctly. Okay, so it definitely has been a good budget for small business, I guess we can fairly say. Yeah, it's been a fantastic one, but um, more work to be done, particularly around the administration for small businesses, helping them spend less time filling forms and more time thinking about their business. And I think what we really need to do is make sure that um, all these small business owners seek professional advice on how everything actually gets implemented. It sounds great, but things have to be done correctly. Okay, so the GST base has changed and that's sort of a big deal for people like me who stream Netflix and, and download movies and games and things like that all the time. So Letty, what's specifically happening with GST in relation to digital goods? Sure, well Nathan, I know that you've been hearing about the Netflix tax or the so-called Netflix it tax. It hurts a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Forever, for, for, for quite a long time in the media. So last night in the budget, the government did confirm that they're going to uh, introduce this law, which is not just for Netflix, it's just that Netflix is well, the most famous uh, businesses that will probably get caught under the new law. Mm-hmm. So basically what the government wants to do is to extend the GST to international supplies of digital products and services imported by Australian consumers, such as your Netflix Australia subscription. And I have one too, so I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> so under the current law, these imports are not subject to GST. Now, very, very broadly speaking, this is because under our rules, um, a supply to be caught by GST, the supply must either be connected to Australia or else it must be an importation of tangible goods. That's just speaking very broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, so real goods. That's right. Real yeah. goods. Yeah, clothes and shoes and so forth. Um, <laughs> property, no, not property. Yes, or, <laughs> or if it's intangible, they must, the, the, uh, the supply must be connected to Australia, like it must have a base here or something like that. Okay. Yep. Whereas a lot of these suppliers um, of your downloads, you know, you would never see them anywhere near Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is because the GST law was written, you know, in the 1990s, where, where when these sorts of transactions were really not so commonplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so according to the government and according to a lot of um, re- retail sector uh, players as well, this places Australian businesses um, at a commercial disadvantage because they generally have to remit GST on their digital products and services that they provide. Um, so this measure is expected to apply from 1st July 2017. Now that is two years away. That does sound like a long time away. You might say, well, but if they've been carrying on about uh, you know, in improving the fairness in the GST system, then why are we waiting two years? Well, we can only hazard a couple of guesses. For one thing, for one thing, um, while they have released the draft legislation, they actually released it last night, the change does actually require the unanimous agreement of the states and territories. Okay. So that's going to be a fun and probably long drawn out <laughs> exercise for the government to <laughs> to deal with. And mm-hmm. I used the fun in a very sarcastic tone as well. Um, the other thing is um, the OECD and the G20, you know how they're taking a lot of action on general multinational tax avoidance and so forth. So um, GST and equivalent sort of taxes in foreign countries on these sorts of international digital transactions 
is one part of the OECD slash G20 action plan. Mm -hmm. And the OECD and the G20 are actually in the process of providing guidance and so forth in relation to these transactions. And so what one thing we could guess is really Australia does want to put something in place in our domestic laws, but at the same time, we also want to make sure that we're, um, we're in line with our foreign counterparts because with all these multinational transactions or international transactions, there's no point putting a law in place that's only a one-way street because mm. it affects multiple countries. Um, so it's really a bit of a watch this space. Like, you know, listeners are... Um, interested in reading legislation? <laughs> um, the draft legislation is actually out on the Treasury website. Um, you can you can engage engage in some consultation on that as well. Uh, but at, at the moment, it's really much this space. Okay, if I can ask a stupid question for a second. No, no. Uh, if these new measures come in from July 1, 2017, does yeah. that mean that we won't be charged GST on Netflix until that time? So Correct. it'll still be GST exclusive until that time. Correct. Okay. And even after it comes in, one major issue that really has to be dealt with from a practical perspective is, well, compliance enforcement. All these, look, Australian companies, the tax office has their tax file numbers, has the ABNs, mm -hmm. has the street addresses, they can, you know, knock on the door anytime. But all these foreign companies, um, especially the smaller players, which aren't world famous, really, how would the tax office know that they are making these supplies to Australian consumers? Um, and so that's a really practical compliance issue that the ATO will have to deal with. Um, there's a couple of things in the draft legislation that may help to address uh, this. Um, for one thing, um, speaking very broadly again, where the overseas entity uses, well, let's just call it an Australian intermediary mm -hmm. to help provide these services to the Australian end consumer, the intermediary will generally be uh, liable, well, be responsible for dealing with the um, admin side of things. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that they can make sure that they get the collected GST. And the other thing is um, the law also uh, is going to introduce a more simplified sort of administration and registration system for these foreign entities, for these foreign companies. Um, so in return for a simplified administration system, those entities will have to forego any input tax credits, but you know it's really cost benefit sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that may also encourage these foreign entities to actually register and comply if it's made a bit easier. Uh, and another thing is, uh, generally speaking, uh, the tax authorities are just increasing their cooperation and data sharing all around the world. Yep. And so in time, in due course, it, it wouldn't be surprising to see that, uh, say, Netflix or some other foreign-based company there uh, the tax authority in their country sends data to Australia saying, well, this particular entity does derive income from Australia. Mm -hmm. And through that, the ATO may be able to say, well, do you owe us any GST? Okay, so it's it's basically uh, a measure to level the playing field. I guess that's what Joe Hockey said yesterday, that the, the idea was to level the playing field. So I guess that's what's happening across the board. That's right, and, and that's the case all around the world. What I have noticed, though, when um, the tax rules have already been drafted, as, as Letty said, and I still think that it's going to take a little bit of uh, redrafting sure. and reiteration on it, because even though we're calling it the Netflix tax, if we can call it that, um, it's very broad with the way that it's been drafted with intangible products. Mm -hmm. So it's basically intangibles are like intellectual property and things like that. So it's not just streaming of movies and everything like that. It's actually any sort of 
consulting advice that comes in offshore from um, you know consultancy services in relation to intellectual property and thing that could also be captured by these rules okay. so it can still can be some you know b2b business to business things and i think that has rang alarm bells especially with the high end of town as well so it's just not you with your netflix subscription nathan there's a lot of other things so i think that this i think this drafting has been a lot broader than what the experts had anticipated now we're looking overseas Letty, what's the government's agenda with international tax? Sure. Well, one thing is we can look overseas and we can look at the overseas people who are coming to Australia for working <laughs> holidays. So currently, under our Australian tax residency rules, a lot of our listeners will be aware that under our tax residency rules, there's a variety of rules whereby if you pass one of them, you become, you're considered to be an Australian tax resident for the year. Okay. Um, now, generally speaking, a working holiday maker can often be treated as an Australian tax resident uh, if they're in Australia for more than six months. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. It's just, generally speaking, that's often the case. So that means that these taxpayers, even if they're only in Australia for eight, nine, 10, 12, 15 months on a working holiday, they can actually access the um, residence tax treatment, such as the tax-free threshold of $18,200, the low-income tax offset, and lower marginal tax rate of 19% after they go over the tax-free threshold, whereas a non-resident of Australia has to pay tax from the first dollar mm-hmm. that they earn. So what the government intends to do is to change these tax residency rules, or more accurately, to add to them, so that most people who are in Australia only for a temporary period for working holiday will automatically be treated as non-resident for tax purposes. And so those taxpayers would then be taxed at 32.5% from their first dollar of taxable income. Now, what we've been seeing in the media over the past 12 or so hours, or more by now, (laughs) is that they're saying that this is going to affect what they call the backpackers. Because backpackers who come from overseas, maybe um, on a gap year, maybe for career break, something like that, do a various odd jobs around the country while they're traveling and seeing seeing the koalas and seeing the harbor bridge <laughs> and so forth, uh, they're now going to be paying more tax on their Australian income. And, and an, an industry that may also be affected is the farming industry, which takes in a lot of foreign seasonal workers. Now, we haven't seen legislation for this yet, so once again, the devil is in the detail, but that's the idea. So the measure is, intended to apply from 1st July 2016, so all those backpackers who are planning to come over for winter season to <laughs> for, for whatever reason um, might well get affected. Now, one thing that our listeners need to be aware of is that people who are over here on 457 visas or temporary residency visas would generally not be affected. Okay. Well, that's a good thing to, yeah. to be aware of. Now, Letty, when it comes to combating multinational tax avoidance, that's something that's been much publicised. Um, even over the last year. I mean, are we going to see that come to a resolution anytime soon? Sure. Well, it's one of those never-ending sagas, really, how long mm-hmm. is a piece of string? But <laughs> yes, in last night's budget, uh, Mr Hockey did make good on his promise to uh, introduce some measures to combat multinational tax avoidance. Um, look, these measures will really only apply to companies with global revenue of at least a billion dollars. So it's not going to affect your uh, your small business or your medium-sized business that's you know selling things overseas or um, or buying things from overseas. Uh, but very broadly speaking, um, a lot of our listeners will be aware that there's a general anti-avoidance rule called Part 4A in our legislation, which basically says that if you do something, enter a scheme 
purely to get or dominantly to get a tax benefit, then you get you lose that tax benefit. So they're basically going to introduce a um, a version of that for these uh, one billion dollar or more multinational companies. Um, there's also uh, going to be new transfer pricing documentation requirements for these companies, and also there's going to be much heftier penalties for these foreign oh, for these multinational companies that uh, that are deliberately trying to avoid Australian tax. But they're basically going to have to pay in um, double the mm-hmm. tax that they avoid, as well as uh, higher rate of penalties. That's quite a hefty tax rate, isn't it? That's quite a hefty penalty, but I guess I've had plenty of warning. Sure. And just like with the uh, GST side of things, um, once again, Australia is working in conjunction with the OECD, with the other members of the G20 to deal with uh, international tax avoidance issues. And so while these things have been proposed, um, at the end of the day, we're just going to see how the government uh, works, works with the other countries and with um, the OECD in implementing uh, implementing multilateral tax avoidance measures. Now, Andy, a lot of people are upset by some FBT changes included in the budget, particularly employees of charities and other not-for-profit organisations. So what's going on with that and what else is going on? Yeah, um, for a long time now, Nathan, um, people who work in um, non-for-profits, hospitals, uh, public benevolent institutions were uh, provided with a uh, special cap of seventeen thousand or $13,000 respectively with respect to uh, certain, um, with respect to uh, salary sacrificed or fr- certain fringe benefits. Now, for a while now, people have been salary sacrificing uh, mill entertainment and uh, entertainment facility leasing expenses. So the most common example is salary sacrificing your entire wedding or uh, wedding reception or salary sacrificing some sort of uh, family party. So. Uh, under the FBT rules, there was no FBT there, and people were able to reduce their income quite substantially um, p- for those who work for those sorts of organisations. Now, the the uh, government has looked into this, and they're, they're of the view that you should have a cap for that, so that um, so that people who do salary sacrifice these things don't necessarily take advantage of the full cap. So, what the government plans to introduce is a single a separate single grossed up cap of $5,000 for salary sacrifice meal entertainment and what they refer to as entertainment facility leasing expenses. So, for example, your venue hire. Mm-hmm. Now, the meal entertainment benefits exceeding that uh, grossed up cap of 5000 can also be included in your other caps. So, namely a $17,000 cap or $13,000 cap depending on uh, which sort of organisation that you work for. Okay. Now, one of the things, Nathan, that that will come out of this is that um, all these salary sacrifice benefits will become reportable. So what does that mean? So that will show up on your payment summary at the end of the income year and it will count towards a certain income testing. So for example, if you had, for example, a help debt, uh, that would uh, increase your help repayments for the year and other specific government entitlements. Uh, so it is something that uh, I think for a very, very long time um, people have said, well, look, you know, this person's working for, you know, for a hospital or for a school. How come they're able to take advantage of this? So the government's identified this as a, uh, a little bit too generous of a concession. And so, therefore, um, it should be uh, peeled back. And they've introduced this $5,000 cap. So this is expected to apply from the 1st of April 2016. So that we're looking at the, the 16, 17 
FBT year. So, um, so for those entities, they will need to get their house in orders in terms of their salary sacrifice policies to ensure that uh, that their employees aren't uh, exceeding these uh, exceeding these caps and, and paying uh, exorbitant uh, amounts of FBT as part of their overall package. Do we think these measures are fair? Well, there's been a lot of commentators out there that that say that to, to some extent that you know it's I'll use it very loosely a rot. Um, <laughs> I, I think that in many cases the those who work for these industries, for these not-for-profits, for hospitals. Um, for schools do need uh, do need that kind of support in terms of having some sort of uh, incentive to work for these industries. So, so I think, in, in my personal opinion, I think this is a happy medium. It's not. It's very hard. It's not a perfect answer. I've heard people say, "Well, with these cuts, why don't you take that money and pour it back into non-for-profits or help out non-for-profits and in that particular way, rather than those funds going into consolidated revenue." They sort of use it as bit as that they're they're part of their remuneration package, don't they, Andy? I mean, they think of that as being, you know, if I don't get it in salary, I'll get it as a as a you know FBT sort of deduction, and I think that's how it's sort of framed. And so what I'm thinking of is I'm wondering, given that uh, a lot of our health professions are heavily unionised, it's going to be interesting what the repercussions of this will be because. Um, I don't know, if I go to hospital, I want to make sure they're happy. <laughs> That's correct. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it will find its way through the Senate. Um, there are certain measures that we feel in this budget will go through, but this is one of those ones where it's safe to say we can put a question mark on. Agree. Now, Reese, the super side of things is pretty quiet this time around, but there are some measures to heed. What are the details? Um, yeah, well, the government did say in its election that it wasn't going to touch super for at least three years. We kind of thought that they that was just something they would say, but they've kept that promise over the last two budgets. So it's it's good in some circumstances that there isn't a lot of change. The changes they have done are generally beneficial. Uh, one of them is in relation to early access uh, to super for terminal illness. Um, up till now, it's been if you've got a 12-month life expectancy, then you can grab it. Um, but if you're anything over that, you, you can't until you reach that 12 months. They've now extended that out to 24 months, which we think is, is a good idea. Um, however, they have said in relation to defined benefit schemes that commencing from 1 January 2016, there will be a 10% cap uh, will be applied to deductible amount of defined benefit income streams for social security income test. So what this means is that there are some people on Commonwealth uh, defined benefit schemes which are quite good um, and they were able to make sure that those that money wasn't counted towards their income test. Now they'll only be able to count 10% of that out of their income test so it'll bring in a lot more uh, people. Um, while there wasn't a lot in relation to superannuation, there was some announcements in relation to pensions. Uh, the biggest issues are in relation to the asset test thresholds. Now for single home owners, um, the asset free area, that is the assets that they conclude and they still get the full uh, government age pension has been increased from 202000 to 250000 and for couple homeowners from 286000 to 375000 uh, and for pensioners who don't own a home, uh, they'll have another 200000 added to that. So for single homeowners, it'll be 450000 And for couple non-homeowners, it'll be 575000 However, what the government has said is that 
Uh, they've heeded the concern of some people that the asset test in relation to the part pension is, is a little bit too generous, uh, so they're winding that back. Uh, so currently, if you can have your home plus $1.15 million in assets and still be able to access the part pension. Under the new rules, you're only able to have $823,000 plus your family home. Uh, so a lot of people that now currently get the part pension won't be able to get the part pension. But what they have said is that any pensioners who lose their pension entitlement uh, from 1 January 2017 as a result of these changes will be automatically issued a Commonwealth Seniors Health Card. So that is a little bit of money back to them. Well, that pretty much wraps things up for Tax Wrap episode 26. This has been your special edition Federal Budget 2015 coverage. It's been quite a mega episode, I do say. There's a, a, quite a few sections, but we will have those uh, separated so that you can easily access the section that you want and get the insight and the analysis that you need. Thanks very much for joining us and tune in next week. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Thanks.